Can you feel it, Mr. Henriksen? The sound of inevitability. The flick clap is here. This is, the podcast is actually pretty accurately described by that opening, because goddamn, if this ain't Matrix-like a nightmare scenario. We will do our best to control the madness. I, I, w- I would say that, i- that in that regard, the hope has long since been lost. There is a shred of truth to that, because, like the Flick Lab, no one can tell you what the Matrix is. You have to research it for yourself. And what a wonderful task it has been for the couple of days. Henrik, we live in a computer-controlled reality, and the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed, and some alteration in our reality occurs, said Philip K. Dick, one of the famous authors of sci-fi. What is the Matrix, Henrik? Do you know? Well, I most certainly do know what Matrix is, but you can never be actually told what the Matrix actually is. Are you sure about that? I thought it was about robots and kung fu. Well, there are several explanations. The Matrix is a life-threatening video game, in which real people can die in, and of which real people have to worry about, due to its tendency of leaking its video game characters out into the real world. And concurrently, said people are stuck in the said video game, and then real people from the real world have to get them out of there by flying like a superman. Have you seen Matrix before, Henrik? <laughs> well, at this point, the question is more like who hasn't seen Matrix already. Hugo Weaving uh, has also seen Matrix before. He's he's stuck in the Matrix. Last I heard. Well, in 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 that case, he most definitely has seen the Matrix, and is currently seeing the Matrix, and will see the Matrix. So Hugo Weaving has seen more Matrix than you and I two combined. This is getting more meta than you would like to think. Well, you you are, once again, you are the absolute lunatic who insisted that we cover the movie in the podcast. So this is one, this, this is the downfall of your own making. It's actually the downfall of our listeners making. We can thank our listener, Temu, for this recommendation. Thank you for your great choice. Yeah, thanks a bunch, dude. Yeah, like, thank si- you. Sincerely, th- thank you, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you v- very yeah. much. Extremely easy subject. And th- thank you, thank you for listening to this podcast. Yeah. Well, this is a movie inspired both by Akira and Ghost in the Shell. For the makers of the film, the directors, the Ghost in the Shell inspiration is evident, but from the rest of the crew, there is also some Akira inspirations. Yeah, well, when it comes to being inspired and drawing influence from other works of creative fiction, you of course have to take note that. Being inspired um, can mean other things than simply, you know, t- taking elements from from that film. It can also be the way how you, for example, compose action and how how you shoot your narrative. It can be about how certain concepts work in your film. For example, how the way how, for example, the city in Matrix is being portrayed, this maze of its own that can swallow you and where you have to kind of constantly look your way out of and around of. And it goes to a point where it's half of an entity, but it's not entirely entity on its own right. And that is, for example, something that you very much see in the way how the city is being portrayed in Akira and in Ghost in the Shell. So all of that, that also is getting inspiration from from those two films and getting inspiration from anime altogether. 
Otomo Katsuhiro was the co-writer and director of Akira. And that was kind of an inspiration for John Gaeta or John Gaeta or however you pronounce that for the bullet time effect. Well, there, there is also the fact that Wachkowskis themselves have been extremely open about that. They drew a lot of inspiration from both from comics and anime. And in both of the cases, the comics and the anime in question has never been completely defined and named. The precise works were for where they have drawn inspiration. So in that case, it's also kind of a force to us to try to take that notion that they drew inspiration from anime and then look at the film and from that and from our combined understanding of anime, try to connect the dots what possible anime films may have been influenced for the Wachkowskis. You're never going to get just a you know complete list of all the elements that has been inspiring the makers of any artistic product. Quite right. Do you remember when you saw The Matrix for the first time? I was about a kid. It was when it was playing in theaters and I was way underage to see it. And I actually had to bribe my best friend's big brother to kind of be our quote-unquote legal guardian so that we could get inside the theater. You have been a movie buff from a very early age, Henrik. I I started when I was... Would have I been like six or seven when I started to really get into movies and watching a lot of movies? You became a consumer of home entertainment. I, I became a passive consumer of pop culture. And if you go with the philosophical inspirations of this film, that's actually quite the sin. My story was less fabulous, let's say. My friend and his brother had a DVD player and they were ecstatic that they had one at the time. They also had Matrix for it, which I knew completely nothing about at the time. But I knew it was kind of the gateway drug to the world of DVD. That was the great film that for many people was an inspiration to change their VHS machinery to DVD machina. It was one of the first DVDs ever released. And I had the pleasure of watching that film for a little while there. I have to say I wasn't completely blown away like everybody else. I was... Oh, I'm not surprised the least mm-hmm. of this notion. And you're going to get more of that in this episode. Mo- mo- most likely, most likely, because I was actually expecting this. Because I, I'm, I'm certain that this episode will be a complete kind of a mental clusterfuck for you. Because, On the contrary, the, the film itself is a clusterfuck that nobody has to this day unclusterfucked because it would be impossible. But yeah, that being said, my friend was notorious for watching terrible films and I was just uh, imagining that The Matrix would be a natural continuation of that set line of stinky films. Of course, as the years years have gone by, I've started to like it more and I've actually watched it out of my own volition. But more importantly, Henrik, The Matrix is known for its visual effects, cinematography and entertainment value and has raised uh, several philosophical ideas, which we will get to. Warner Bros. were interested in making Wachowski's uh, one of the scripts called Assassins. It was directed by Richard Donner. And they also bought the license to do Bound and The Matrix as well. 
The Matrix, of course, was uh, $60 million, so it was a big risk for Warner Brothers to go with. It was decided that the bulk of the film would be filmed in Australia to make things more affordable, because it apparently was more affordable. And the film became a co-production between Warner Brothers and Village Roadshow. The actors were also required to understand and explain what is the Matrix. Jean Baudrillard wrote the Simulacra and Simulation, which was mandatory reading for most of the main cast. And for this podcast, I read it, unfortunately. Reeves had to read a little bit more. He had to read Simulacra and Simulation, Kevin Kelly's Out of Control, The New Biology of Machine Social Systems and the Economic World, and also Dylan Evans' ideas on evolutionary psychology. All of this before they even showed him the script. And after that, Keanu was able to explain all the philosophical nuances of the film, which I very much doubt. I wish I had more time to read also Kevin Kelly's stuff, because apparently that is more about what The Matrix is about. And according to the writer of Simulacra Simulation, they have completely missed the entire point of Simulacra and Simulation in the film. So, of course, the directors are also big fans of Hong Kongese cinema and martial arts, so they wanted to incorporate all of that into the film. And one of the important characters in, behind this film is Yu Wunping, a Chinese martial arts choreographer who was invited for the project. First, he was not into the project, didn't want to join, and to avoid joining, he made an exuberant amount of money offer for them, for the project, for his contributions, and then they actually accepted the offer, and he was surprised. So he joined the project. Of course, the film is also known for the bullet time effect, which the film basically invents here. It enables the shot to progress in slow motion, while the camera appears to move at a normal speed throughout the scene. The term bullet time is for the first time mentioned in the Matrix script and was further popularized by the video game Max Payne. So here we go with some more cyberpunk in this podcast. Neo is played by Keanu Reeves. Both Brad Pitt and Val Kilmer turned down this role. Thereafter, the studio was pursuing Keanu Reeves. And he also won the role over Johnny Depp, which was the director's first choice for the role. Also, some ones who were approached were Will Smith and Nicolas yeah. Cage, both yes. who also turned out the role. Yeah, Will Smith has later said that he was not mature enough to play the role and, and that he would have messed it up, quote, if he had been given the chance. As he most likely would actually would have done. I have no kind of hesitation to guess that that would have happened if Smith would have followed through. And I quite like the setup in the finished product where we have white and black actors quite in a balanced way. Oracle, Morpheus, crew members, so on and so forth. More leading hero black actors in this film in a sci-fi than we had seen before in my opinion. Morpheus is played by Lawrence Fishburne. Morpheus means in Greek mythology the god of dreams. Gary Oldman, Val Kilmer and Samuel L. Jackson were also considered for the role of Morpheus. He read the script and could not understand why some people had found it confusing. Lawrence wasn't sure if this kind of a film could be made because in his opinion it was so smart. Which is a comment to which we will get back to throughout this episode. Trinity is played by Carrie Ann Moss. She couldn't believe that she would be doing some 
crazy stunts in this film, but indeed she had to do those and actually injured her ankle. Also prior shooting, she had to go through a three-hour physical test to see what kind of a physical stress she would be going through throughout the filming. She also had trouble of grasping the philosophical mumbo-jumbo that we go throughout the film. She had reading to do like the rest of the cast. Janet Jackson was also approached for the role, but due to scheduling conflicts, the role went to Moss. I think if you're going to have a Janet Jackson in your Matrix, I think you should cast her as the Oracle instead of Trinity. Hugo Weaving was chosen as Agent Smith. He said that the character was extremely enjoyable to play and it amused him. He tried to develop an accent that would not be human nor robotic. Something in between instead. And said that the Wachowski's voices were some kind of inspiration partly for that. He also cracked his ribs during filming, had problem with bone marrow. Gloria Foster plays the Oracle. She also played the Oracle in The Matrix Reloaded, but somehow not in The Matrix Revolutions, even though Reloaded and Revolutions were filmed during the same time. Somehow she just had time in real life to die before appearing in Revolutions. And then I could of course name drop the entire crew of the Nebuchadnezzar, but I don't think that's gonna be very useful, so would it be scene by scene? Uh, I guess we can simply move to scene by scene. Well, we open up with the call between Trinity and Cypher, and whether Trinity believes in the one concept or not. And of course in the background, and of course we have the green text which is an homage to Ghost in the Shell. So, in the film we move on to room 303. We start the film there and we end the film there. The agents arrive and Trinity does her bullet time magic trick on the cops. The rooftop set is a leftover from the film Dark City. The agents are talking about the next target of the Nebuchadnezzar, that being the Mr. Anderson. For now they just believe he is uh, just regular one Nebuchadnezzar member and not more than that, but he is more. Or actually isn't. Or is. Try to figure this thing out. Henrik, anything else about the revolutionary bullet time? Well, only the notion that that is basically opening your film film 101. It opens the film right off the bat with a bang. It showcases you what kind of experience you are in for. And it starts immediately kind of highlighting the mysteries of the world. It showcases you that there is something obviously at at play behind the film's universe because what you see is not humanly possible and the other other characters also point this out so when it comes to film openings I, I would say Matrix has one of the strongest ever made yeah I guess it builds excitement from the get-go the crew was very well prepared for the film they had over a 600 page what is it well, not that. Yeah, that storyboard to get every shot into the book. They had. Making that is kind of filming 101 as well. Wachikovsky's notably has have had a previous background in comic books, both as fans and as, as creators. And that is something that really did show throughout the process of designing the film, because basically the entire film was, as you pointed out, it was meticulously put to the visual screenplay 
Trinity jumps through the window to the next building, gets to the phone booth. So Trinity gets to the real world, while in the Matrix we are introduced to Neo, who lives in room 101, which is, or can be seen as a direct reference to 1984 by Orville, if you want to take it like that. The room where your deepest fears are kept, except they kind of aren't in this film. There is Morpheus articles on the screensaver of Neo, and like in every Matrix film, it starts with Neo waking up and Trinity being in distress. Neo sees messages on his monitor, it's Trinity writing him some epic stuff, and somebody knocks on the door, it's the friend of Neo, Joy, who wants a disc containing who knows what, and gets it, and Neo gets money in return. Yeah, it, it was those that golden age of early 2000s when a completely mysterious data slate easily was worth the two grand. And the disc is in between a cut simulacran simulation book, in fact. And Neo sees the bunny tattoo on the girl, and then deduces that this is related to Trinity, who was just writing about wabbits, and is a reference also to Alice in Wonderland. Neo joins the gang and then goes to the party, which he shouldn't do because he should be working in the morning. In the club we have Dragula Rod Herman remix playing in the background from Rob Zombie. Soundtrack all in all includes music from Rob Zombie, Rammstein, Rob Dogan, Propeller Heads, Rage Against the Machine, Deftones, Ministry, The Prodigy, Monster Magner Meat Beat Manifesto, Marilyn Manson. The Trinity appears. Maybe the sexiest introduction to any character in film history. Too bad it's done with Rob Zombie playing in the background. I mean, the music is kind of okay for the situation, but just knowing that fact. Something to also note with the first introductions of Trinity now interacting with Neo is that, well, the, as a trilogy, the Matrix kind of got a lot of flack in the later two films for for the Christian imagery and using Christian symbolism, which many felt was kind of attacked on and unneeded in in the course of the film uh, or, or the story that the films were trying to tell. But it actually, when you look at the first first one already, it becomes blatantly obvious that the Christian imagery is already called upon already in here at the very beginning of the original Matrix. So it was something that the or the religious aspects and the religious themes and motives were something that has always been part of the franchise almost from the first five minutes onwards and was not simply something that the Wachkowskis found to add into the story in the later sequels. Yeah, it's all over this movie also, in fact. They say that this movie has ideas of Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity, and who knows what. Yeah, I mean, the, the Trinity herself, uh, as a name, is kind of calling into the Holy Trinity. And Neo is, is kind of, a, he's already in here, he's portrayed as, as a, as a kind of a Christian Jesus figure, some someone who comes from the outside and who, in the end, has to sacrifice himself to 
Well, even in, in here it's to save Morpheus, but also through Morpheus the crew of Nebulasnesa, and also the inhabitants of the city of Sion. So there is also that, that Caesar's aspect and the whole theme that you kind of have to die in order to res resurrect your spirit and shed away your ego. And also the, the way how Smith in the end ends up dying at the very end. There also you you can see the the Jewish imagery that you pointed out. Yeah, most definitely. It will be good to look at all the Jesus stuff near the end of the film. I'm sure there's a lot to talk about. Trinity is being very cryptic in this scene. Just throwing lines like, They're watching you, Neil. Of course, it's kind of typical movie making, I guess, to make you intrigued, and that's what I guess Trinity is doing right here for Neo. To make him join the kind of anti-matrix movement, and says that it's the question that drives us, even though the question has not been introduced to the audience prior. The first natural question that would come to the audience's mind is probably, what's the meaning of life? But the question, as we learn, is, what is the matrix? instead. It's a really odd concept that we will get to. But first, let's get back to work. The scenes that happen inside the Matrix have this green tint to them, and the blue color is concentrated on the real-life scenes, which is kind of interesting if you think about, you know, color sciences. That makes the real world kind of look pretty cold. But then again, that's what they're gonna do with everything in the real world. It's made to look pretty grim. Well, it is and it isn't. Like, the real world of the film as a world is kind of a miserable place, but how, how the world is being depicted in the film through, through color, through lenses that are being used, and even through what with the aspects you are being shown, especially in the sequels about the city of Zion, all of those actually are pretty warm, even joyous, like... There, there is there is humanity in those aspects that are that is completely avoided in the sequences that happen inside the Matrix. Well, I disagree completely because the real world is always depicted as something that is very ugly and uncomfortable, which of course in a way makes sense because they are underground and they, they don't want to be there. They want to get to the top and continue doing their human thing and keep destroying it in nature, but. Uh, but anyway, the Nebuchadnezzar shots are aching something to Alien Resurrection color palette. Hopeless, dirty, uncomfortable, unappealing. Well, but once again, the color coding of those scenes that happen in Nebuchadnezzar, in, in those, the, what, what they invoke is, is that light blue, which is the dominant color in those scenes, and that is a hell of a lot warmer color than the... Industrial green, kind of a toxic green, which they instead use in the Matrix sequences. And also the lens techniques that they use in, in Nebuchadnezzar, they use a white lens, which obstructs the background image and highlights the actors in front of the image. And in this way, it pays more attention to the humans in, inside the spaceship. And that way, by hiding the background, by hiding the constructs of the ship, it gives you kind of this more intimate and more warmer image. 
when 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 you look look at when, when you look at what what is being shown in in the Matrix sequences, the background and the world, it's constantly being shown at the equal level with the actors. The actors may be in front of the image, but still they are as strong. It's a combination. It's a combination of the background and the actors. The, uh, the background is not being hidden, washed away in those sequences. So the makeshift constructs and the limitations those constructs give to you, they are constantly being shown alongside with the human element and with the characters. Yeah, it's not only about the color palette, it's also about the character of the ship. It's made to look very worn out and old. I get that they want to do something else than have been seeing a million times in like Star Trek or something where everything is clinically clean. But I still don't understand why do you have to have, I guess your main place, the place that you're supposed to care about. Why do you have to make it alien-like, like alien resurrection type? hopeless and uh, disgusting place where you wouldn't want to waste any second of your life. Well, why shouldn't they? If you take the situation of Matrix or Aliens, in both of those films, you gotta follow more or less characters that in real world are down-to-earth characters. In Alien, they are pretty much just glorified truck drivers in Matrix while the whole society has collapsed and there is the constant war going on between the fragments of humanity and the overruling machine race. So in in, in that sense, you know, having something like USS Enterprise would be, dude, what? Why? How? It depends on what kind of feelings you're trying to evoke. If you're trying to evoke feelings of horror, then this is your best bet right here. Hopeless, ugly, dusty, rusty. If that's what you're looking for, that's exactly what you get here. Uh, yes and no. Uh... In case of Matrix, you actually can see some care put into the ship because the ship is is in constant repair. Sure, it it, it is kind of a crumpling around because it's an it's an old ship. But at the same time, it does give you the image that someone is constantly also taking care of the ship and repairing it and taking parts and adding them to the ship. And there is also, unlike in Aliens, in here the technology is so uh, depicted more as a, as a kind of a hybrid, a symbiosis between the man and the machine. For example, all the cabling inside Nebuchadnezzar, they are color-coded to red and blue to evoke you the feeling of blood vessels inside your body. In that way, th- there is this this connection of the vessel itself, also kind of a being a life force, being a blood distribution system that allows the characters to continue existing. At the same time, while it's been ugly and it's being in repair constantly, it also is something that is shown to be a safe haven for the characters, and something that allows the characters to constantly move forward, and something that without it, the characters actually couldn't do anything, they would be completely hopeless. Yeah, it's their safe haven, ugly nonetheless. Well, uh, yes and no. Uh... It is ugly in a sense that it's not your clean, almost sterile bridge that you get in Star Trek. No. But I, I wouldn't say it's completely ugly either. Because there, there is that connection between the characters and the ship. And that connection also is something that I felt that is not present, for example, in alien films. 
Okay, we have to deduce it's subjective, I guess. The costume design is very important and very well made in this film. For example, Ken Reeves' office suit is kind of disheveled, out of place, uncomfortable. Of course, with a plan to make the Matrix feel very uncomfortable. Well done psychological tricks for the audience. When they shot this scene, uh, Keanu Reeves was still recuperating from his neck surgery. He was in the same state also when filming the interrogation room scene and the car ride to the Oracle. Mr. Neo hears that he has a problem with authorita. It's great to have the glass wipers outside the building, adding additional points of interest during a scene that would otherwise not be as engaging, probably, just to keep the viewers interest going. Henrik, do you also get your FedEx packages with a similar type of attitude that you really don't care or remember if you have ordered anything, for example, a late 90s cell phone? If I would get FedEx packages, most likely, yeah. <laughs> the FedEx guy says, have a nice day, and Neo gives him this odd stare, like, I, this is the first time in my life that the FedEx guy says, have a nice day. Morpheus and Neo say hi to each other via the phone. There are agents coming to the office. Oh shit. Yes. So he tries to take the scaffold to get to the roof to meet Morpheus and escape via helicopter or something like that. Most likely to ground the level so that he could reach the motorcycle that Trinity is driving. If so, then they would have to probably take the elevator from the top down and that's kind of a risky movie as well, but maybe it's like you said. Morpheus leaves the decision-making for Neo. And so it happens that he will choose the interrogation. And it's pretty smart filmmaking at that at this point we are not making Neo to be some kind of a Superman just yet. There will be some hardships before that can happen. In a lesser film, Neo just would have gone to the bike su- successfully and that's it. It would appear that Mr. Anderson has been living two lives and doing exciting stuff with garbage. He wants the whereabouts of Morpheus, but it's not forthcoming, so instead he gets the middle finger. Therefore, a buck is inserted into the navel. A scene that actually took five hours to film originally, and that was five hours that Keanu had his mouth blocked by the prosthesis that he's wearing during the scene, meaning that he was unable to open his mouth and communicate with the outside world, except by writing his questions and comments on pieces of paper. Or just take the mouthpiece out of your mouth. In which case you would have actually broken it, and there would have been need to remake it and reattach it. Interesting then that they didn't do it just simply with some kind of a overall mouth green screen paper. Yeah, it is actually quite interesting exactly how much of practical effects the Vachkovskis actually used throughout this film. Because a lot of the things that you would firsthand expect to be CGI is actually enormous practical sets. Like, for example, the Neo's awakening in the power plant the whole office building and the entire wall inside of which they crawl. Those are all practical sets. Yeah, just to make the distinction that uh, there is uh, CGI in the scene as well. The effect is CGI. Neo's mouth kind of melting together. But once it is kind of a shot, once that process is ended, 
And there is that Harlan Ellison-esque moment of Neo having no mouth and having to scream. That is actually a practical. And then Neo has awakened. So audience is left momentarily confused. Was this a dream or was it not a dream? Morpheus calls and says that this line is tapped, so I must be brief. But if the line is tapped, then why stay on the line at all? Because you're going to let them know the location of where they are. So why is it that the AI is not able to find at any time and in any place the humans in his own program, Henrik? I would say that that is because the AI and the Matrix itself is also kind of a falling apart already at this point. It is a running theme in the later parts of the trilogy, yeah. where they raise up more of the point that Matrix is kind of a, in, in a crashing point. That is the whole meaning of Neo's role as the chosen one. Neo, it is revealed, was it in Reloaded, that... What Neo in the end truly is, is just a man who has the Matrix boot disk stuck in his head. So that Matrix can be rebooted because it's already almost coming, crumbling down. And you can already kind of see it, although pretty damn quickly, in the first film. In the woman in the red dress sequence. If you look at the image closely, you actually see that they are using a lot of twins and triplets. In that scene, and all of the twins have been clothed the same way, like they are they are wearing the same pair of clothes, giving you you the image that even already at this point, what the matrix is doing, it is reusing character designs and it's spamming NPCs all through the scene simply to show you that give you the illusion of a real world. That is very interesting, Henrik, but the first Matrix never exemplifies and explains why, for example, the agents are completely unable to just delete the humans from the Matrix with the push of a button. And, and no, but uh, that kind of comes down to with Wachkowski's from the get-go designing the whole thing as a trilogy. The common consensus when it comes to Matrix films is that they wanted to simply make this one film and it became hugely successful so that then they came back and just later on designed the sequels. In reality, if we go by the word of the actual creators of the film, from the day one it was designed to be a trilogy. So there is a lot of stuff that is kind of shown to you and given to you in a bare bones concept here in the first film, and then it gets returned back to in the later films. This goes to the religious themes, this goes to the philosophical ponderings, even how the characters and the Matrix itself works. More likely explanation is that the Wachowskis just realized that the easy way to go about this to make a two-hour film is to make it so that for some odd reason, the Matrix is not able to control every, everything and anything at any time because it would make for a five-second film. So, Mr. Anderson is now in the car and he's been pointed by a gun and is already ready to leave the car. But Trinity says that if you go out, you know exactly where that road ends. Yes, I realize that's allegorical, but where does it end? Meaningless death, meaningless life, something like that. 
The way I took it and how I believe that the film was meant to be taken is that it actually would lead back into Neo's boring everyday life where he would never actually get the answer to the question, what is the Matrix? Yes, basically the same thing that I just said. So we remove the bug. Many technical cases in the film are given natural, like words or features. Vis-a-vis the description, the bug is actually a bug, as an example. Even more so in the later two films. Quite right. Meeting of Morpheus. Trinity gives the advice that don't lie, because he knows more than you can imagine. Then Morpheus makes the notion to Neo that you must be feeling like Alice stumbling down a rabbit hole. Neo says that he doesn't believe in faith because he doesn't like to think that he is not in control of his own life. Which of course is just a false dichotomy because the lack of faith doesn't mean that you are in control of your life. It's just the illusion of being in control. Which is a discussion topic that we have had endlessly in this podcast. And what would that theme be? Like the faith or the fact that are you in control? That you are not in control and there is no such thing as free will once again. So I feel like the Wachowskis are mixing up a lot of big concepts and doing it all over the film. So in that sense it's kind of hard to say what to think about these big concepts laid out here because they are all blended and mixed up so you're not sure what to say. Because at the end of the day it doesn't make much sense. That's kind of a peculiar notion, because I most definitely did not have that problem with the film. Well, that's really weird, but uh, we will get back to this. Trinity says that there's something wrong, but you're not sure what. I guess it's kind of a biblical reference once again. It's also a reference that has been hugely taken over by the outright movement at this point. Outright, the Flat Earthers, and pretty much every Yahoo faction that we have in the modern world, Pretty much everything in Morpheus, surprisingly, has changed into quotations and images that are constantly being used by a certain type of societal groups. So essentially you are saying that the Matrix is too hard to understand for the general population. Uh, Is this really the connection that you want to make in this podcast? To quote Sean Connery, watch the connection. Well, how could you not make that connection? I mean, the concept of red pilling, and this way, the red pill, blue pill, is something that is widely being used by outright groups and, for example, outright groups and flat earthers. Oh, God. Yeah, it it has become a word of itself. Give me some red pilling facts. And basically, a lot of the stuff that Morpheus says is something that is constantly being quoted. By these exact same groups. Like, have you ever had a dream that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? Or why my eyes hurt? And Morpheus responds, you've never used them before. Or I'm trying to free your mind, but I can only show you the door. You are the one who has to walk through it. So take a look at my weird YouTube video where I explain why Earth is flat. Wonderful. What a way to rape the scenarios of the film. It is, it is. And it's actually, it's also quite baffling that <laughs> this is this is the film that they have taken to uh, the root of their material. Even their ideology and, and how they see themselves 
like the source of their self-imaging and the creation of the identity they try to produce. Because when you actually watch the film, what in the end is the film all about? Since the film sets up that Matrix is supposed to be real world, and Smith makes the notion that there are taxes that are being paid by those who are in Matrix. Because that's, once again, that there is one controlling construct that was built inside the Matrix to keep everyone in line. You have to pay taxes. So when Neo and the bunch leave Matrix and free themselves, that's something that they leave behind. They understand that they now live in a world that where there are no taxes. Taxes belong to the Matrix. So essentially the whole crew is a bunch of tax avoiders. And they are also someones who are being formed as an energy source for the machines. So they are quite literally, they are the means of production. So here we have the means of production freeing themselves. And in the later films, when the Zion is being introduced, you see that they have formed a socialist society where they live and from which they actually go into the war, where they go against the more constructive and the more controlled society, that is the Matrix, which is being embodied by quite literally bloodthirsty and massacring machines and drones. And this is the film through which Altright takes its quotation and takes its imagery. Like, for fuck's sake, America. Like, why? Why? Shouldn't you be against this stuff? Like, this is almost communism, the film. Yeah, well, this is uh, anti-establishment, the film. Not even communistic, just anti-establishment. There are other quotes, like, it's like a splinter in your mind to know what the Matrix is. Insert anything here for as the meaning, as you like. It can be Jehovah's Witnesses at your door, trying to get the splinter out of your mind so you can believe in Jehovah. This is an essential problem with symbolism. Even the alt-right can find something fitting for their purposes for the propaganda. Yeah, that is the problem of symbolism. And unfortunately, that is the way how the societal discussion, extremely strong quotation marks, at this point is actually carried over. I would actually argue that the Matrix has less meant symbolism than people like to attribute to it usually. And if not, then oh boy, aren't we gonna have fun tonight. The worst offender of overblown symbolism is at the end of the film, and we will get to that. So Matrix is control, and it's a system, at least in two meanings of the word. Morpheus then offers hallucinogens to fix that problem. Truthfully, I don't know what is the worst prison of your mind. The prison of the lie or the prison of reality, which really sucks. In this sense, when it comes to pleasure and commodities, I would say that the Matrix is better than the real life. And the entire surface of the Earth has been destroyed, for God's sake, so this makes it an interesting offer, like, do you want the fake desperation or the real desperation? Make your choice. Yeah, but at the same time, it is also like Trinity points out later in the film that what they also have been given at that moment is the truth. They are most definitely woe. Yeah, at the end of the day I would go for the truth as well. And what Morpheus says, he's just offering the truth. Doesn't mean that it's sweet or sour or anything, it's just the truth. Yeah, sometimes truth is quite the bastard. But that is something that goes on with actually 
trying to achieve the truth. Every now and then the truth hurts you. Today you hear a lot of talk about truth. Everybody is trying to get the truth. Everybody is chasing the truth. The goddamn flat earthers themselves depict themselves as the scientists of the modern era who are seeing past the lies and seeing the truth. Everybody is looking the truth and making the claim how they are the ones who have found the truth. Like it can be seen in Matrix. Sometimes ignorance really it might be bliss. Like there is the old saying that the Finnish saying, I don't know how it exactly translates to English, but basically... Knowing causes you more pain. And there actually is some very sound logic behind that. Yeah, in that sense it's really easy to see where Cypher is coming from. Yeah, I, I never actually took Cypher as completely villainous character. Like, obviously, yeah, he's, he is the backstabber who murders three people, tries to aim for five or six in total and sells Morpheus to the whole system and almost causes the massacre of the city of Zion, but at the same time you can actually quite sympathize with the dilemma that Cypher is being proposed to Cypher, and he's plighted to actually somehow forget the truth and once again be able to close his eyes from it. Quite shows you the problem of connecting to the Matrix from the ship. Just connect one dude or dudette from the ship and then somebody goes psycho in the ship and is going on a killing rampage. And I'm all for the idea that we're living in some kind of a matrix reality. That's fine and dandy. But what I'm less accepting maybe is the possibility that we would actually be existing anywhere else outside of the possible simulation. And I'm also less accepting for the idea that we'd be used as, as just some kind of energy source. They could have just used antelopes, giraffes, or elephants, or... Yeah, 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 that bio-battery plot point, which everybody has rightfully criticized. Do the films, or not the film's defense really, because that is what in the end there is film, but what when it comes to the bio-battery plotline, I've understood that that was actually something that was mandated by the producers of the film. Like in the original script it was meant that the humans are being formed so that their brains can be used as processors. What was done to humans was done in order for the machines and the matrix get more processing power, which actually makes a hell of a lot more sense that the whole bio-battery stuff, but the producers felt that that whole humans as processors and using brain as a source of processing power would be too complex for the American audiences, so they demanded something a bit more easier to grasp. Well... So now it's humans are a bunch of AAA alcoholic batteries. Humans have to be kind of kept in check and in line for you to actually be able to control them. Obviously, if, if, if you really want to get, you know, down and greedy with this stuff, obviously you can make the, make the case that, and this, this applies more to that bio-battery plotline, that the Matrix in itself is not needed, because you could simply paralyze the humans, you could tie them down, or you could simply, you know, cause them permanent brain damage, which would once again keep them ductile, and keep them in those ports. Mm. So you wouldn't need the Matrix to work as an intelligent prison to yeah. keep control of your batteries. But if you would take the processing power, in that case, there would be the point that the Matrix also gives st constant stimuli to human brain. 
and activates the brain. And in that sense, you know, I, I could see that that could actually help the cause of using the human brains as processors, because that would actually advance the brain. It would, it would make the brain more productive in that sense, because it would evolve throughout your lifetime through the stimuli that you have been given, and it would constantly bombard by a less enough stimuli. Enough stimuli that, you know, the brain is constantly active, but not so much that it would overwork the brain, so that you couldn't use it as a processor anymore. Right, but if you're just harnessing energy from your humans and keeping them in your pods, and the distraction for the humans is to keep them connected to the matrix. So if you're talking about harnessing processing power, you're saying that the scenario in your scenario would be the same, that they are also kept in their pods and also kept connected to the matrix. Yep, yep. Okay. And the whole concept of the matrix, in my opinion, it makes more sense to exist in the film's universe if they would have kept that people as processors plotline. Mm. Because the Matrix kind of becomes too complicated safety mechanism to guard your batteries with the plotline that the film now gives you, that they are simply farmed for their energy. But in a sense it makes sense because they don't have sun, because the humans apparently have messed up the surface to, so they can't have their sun. So now that they're out of solar power they have to have some other means of harnessing power. Theoretically, if you would go with the processing power route, then probably outside if it would have been peachy and sunny. Well, not necessarily that. It could simply be that the machines have found another way to actually... Or they wouldn't have been solar-powered in the first place. Maybe, maybe. But this is what the story of Matrix gives to you. That it is, and if the rumors of the producer meddling are true, it once again goes to show you why every now and then the producers should simply be locked in a room completely different from the one that where you are actually designing and making your movie. And to get further deeper into the films in Broglio, is the glass-eating Neo eating the fake Neo or what? I guess it's anyone's guess. He's being consumed by glass. And just before the glass eats him up completely, he wakes up in his pod. Another question could be, why is the evil robot helping Neo? Doesn't seem like this is some kind of a Nebuchadnezzar robot helping them out. But anyway, they have parked the Nebuchadnezzar somewhere really close to the plant, even though they were supposed to go stay the hell out of there. And aren't the power sources the humans kept at the surface level? So that would mean that the Nebuchadnezzar is close to surface level, which is even worse. And uh, somehow he is able to get out of the pod with the help of the robot and drop to this lake. The pod was pre-tested and the tester got hypothermia because the pod was not heated up. I sure can understand why you can't heat the pod. Like, it's not like it's gonna really show on the film. Some kind of a real oversight here. That was something that simply hadn't come into anyone's mind when they were testing the board. The fact that you would actually have to heat up the liquid. Okay, and you just like that get hypothermia in 8 minutes. It must have been really cold. Yeah, it's a goofy mistake from the crew's side. I give you that much, but it was precisely that. It, it was a mistake, something that nobody actually took notice of before they started to test the board. Nobody stopped to think that Hey, wait a minute, does the glue 
actually get code and how code could it get and could that actually lead into hypothermia. Yeah, and I guess we could spend the next two hours at least talking about the bots and how impractical they are hooked to the wall and every human is in a separate container with considerable space in between the parts. So anyway, Keanu Reeves went through a transformation for this scene. He lost 15 pounds or 7 kilograms. Also shaved his entire body to give it a more emaciated look. Now they're rebuilding his muscles with some super advanced acupuncture needles. Neo is now aboard Nebuchadnezzar and they're trying to revive his real body. So he has never used his actual body. That's why his eyes hurt in the film watching the sexy Morpheus. Of course, you can read whatever you want into it, some kind of a religious stuff, like, have a blast with that. <laughs> now we're introduced to the Nebuchadnezzar team. It's the year 2199 or something. Nobody's quite sure, somehow. Somebody lost a titty calendar. Well, because the kind of a Britain history has been lost at some point. Yeah, epically destroyed. Yeah, that that's some, something that more often than not happens in films when the nuclear holocaust is invoked. Like, this is also something that happens in Mad Max movies. Fucking constantly. Yeah. It's the future post-nuclear apocalypse. And then you ask, what year? And what year? I don't know. Apoch is this guy with the long hair and... Kind of a kept in the back throughout the film. Yeah, well, you barely remember the dude when he finally dies. Then we have Switch, the not like this lady. Then we have Saifa, who betrays everybody. And then we have Tank and Dozer, who both were born in the real world. Then we have Moose. He's the one who programmed the Red Lady and he's completely obsessed about his own creation, the young guy. So Neo wanted to know what the hell the Matrix is, so we jump with Morpheus into the loading program. It's a residual self-image, mental protection of your digital self, that you're using inside the loading program. Go ahead and read it in whichever way you want. The real is just electrical impulses sent to your brain. So once again, basically, I think the Matrix is telling us that there is no self, at least in the Matrix. Well, it, it kind of does and it kind of doesn't. Like, when it comes to the point of self and being real, that is something that is that became the very touching stone of the entire trilogy. That is the one of the main themes which gets revisited throughout each and every film. Like, what is real and do you have free will? Yeah, Matrix Reloaded jumps into this stuff even further and the whole complexity of your self. Yeah, Reloaded uh, basically expands massively into the whole mythology and uh, psychological point. So go ahead and scrutinize that and drive yourself crazy with that. I mean, if you really start to scrutinize what is being said in Matrix Reloaded, it doesn't make any fucking sense. The dialogue or you not being real? The dialogue? Well, how, how come? How come? Especially in the first one, but I would say that in, in the throughout the entire trilogy, the dialogue when it comes to these philosophical themes, it's not that hard, actually. It's very layman's discussion that they end up having. Oh yeah, for example, with the architect, where he's not making any fucking sense when he's tr- starting to get deeper into the concept of existence. So, in my opinion, The Matrix is a high-concept hokum, brainless entertainment. 
Yes, it's tapping into the major domains of philosophical or spiritual themes. Not staying concise with the ideas that it's tackling. So it's kind of a more entertainment. Not even being completely well, ori- original with that. that that's, that, that's a common argument that is being loaded against the films. That they are make-believe philosophical. And they are not really philosophical in any sense. That they are simply mindless action films where you are given a question every now and then to to give you the appearance that the films are smarter than they really are. Pretty much. And I, I, I've been actually wondering this. And since you actually brought the point up here, I guess you are as, as good person to answer this as anyone else who makes this point. But what in the end then would you be demanding of the film? Like what would it have to do and say for you to actually say that yeah it's actually trying to propose a philosophical question yes it uh, proposes many philosophical questions but the answers of the questions themselves do not always make sense if you want me to break down now the dialogue of matrix reloaded and the architect i think we need another episode for that one how how come it's not making sense well i i mean the questions really ain't that difficult in the end The The concepts are deep, I give it that much, but what is being said is actually being said extremely clearly. You you don't even have to really know any of the philosophers whose theories are being revoked in the films to understand what they are being talking about, because they state out any given viewpoint quite clearly. It's not about if it's uh, written in layman terms or not, it's about the fact that it doesn't make sense. We could, of course, talk about the dialogue of the architect, but we need a Matrix Reloaded episode for that, so we can dissect it piece by piece, where he talks about what the Matrix is or isn't, or whatever the fuck that is. But I haven't prepared for Reloaded for this one. Yeah, neither have I. Neither have I. I didn't check the, the later films for this episode, so I haven't visited the exact dialogue for quite some time now. But what I remember of the architect dialogue and the character all together, it really wasn't that hard to grasp. It's not about grasping it. I mean, I can any day of the week grasp it in the level that it's presenting it to me, but the level that it's presenting it to me doesn't make sense. That's the problem. Like, people who understand something about coding are actually looking for a chosen one, so to speak, to infiltrate the matrix to challenge the AI, which is the administrator of the AI program, in which the AI cannot do jack shit. But anyway, you have a system that is uh, fiercely looking for an equilibrium all the time, and that's why the Agent Smith and the uh, Neo explode in a glorious light at the end of the trilogy. So sounds to me that at the end of the day, what it what this boils down to right here at the Flick Lab is that you are willing to accept other things that I'm willing to accept in the film. And I would counter-argue that from all those points that you proposed, only the moment where Smith exits the program and comes to the real world of the Matrix universe, that is the only one that is kind of harder to approach as an idea. Basically, everything else is something that you more or less have seen a rudimentary examples already in our world not 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 in the high class level that as they are being proposed in the future 
of the Matrix films in 2100, whatever it was. But you still actually, you, you see all these applications already in play in our world. You have the virtual realities. You have the thinking AIs. You have the creating AIs. The one, you, you, the one. You, you have your fucking cheat codes. And you, 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 have, you have the ability to go code even without doing actual coding. So it's, it's good that you mentioned the coding because that's what Neo is doing kind of throughout the entirety of the film. Modifying, changing, cheating the code on the fly to his advantage once he gets experienced enough with that code. Also, there is the concept of the malevolent AI which is also a thing we haven't really seen in the real world. A concept not... that you hate, by the way, but here you're willing to give it a full pass. I, I'm not giving it a full pass. Benevolent AI still is extremely problematic concept, like it's in every goddamn sci-fi film that actually uses it. But if, if I would go hard against it, if I would say that film is shit because it has benevolent AI... Well, I, I guess we would have to de redo the whole fucking Terminator 2 once again, because what is Skynet? Unless once again another film that uses the self-conscious AI concept. But when it comes to the yeah. when it comes to evil AI, we already kinda have it. We simply don't have it in the scale that it's been used in the Matrix. Maybe, maybe. The Matrix supercomputer is pretty stupid, though. Well, but 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 the stupid supercomputer is the goddamn AI. Yep. And we do have it in the sense that there are the AI constructions that already are actually calculating for the huge data companies on how humans behave, so that the human behavior can be more predictable. That is one form of control that your goddamn Facebooks and your mobile apps are being using already at this point. Sure, sure, everybody working in those companies do read shit ton of psychology and industrial design is a real scientific field. I give you that much, but already in those fields also the AIs and the computer programs are being used constantly to help the human element to be more efficient. We have AIs who create horror landscapes. We have AIs that can run torture simulations to give you kind of a hard data from those. So what are those if not evil AIs? Likewise, we also have a good AIs. We have AIs who have been able to make music, to make an actual musical track. So we already have the Matrix AI computer program diectomy already happening in our world. It's just not on this level yet. Yeah. You, you have virtual reality. It's not as good as it's in Matrix. Your, your best at this point is, is the latest Resident Evil. Which, yeah, it's clunky at, and it's limited, but you already have that. Yeah, it's just getting a little bit tiresome that uh, in almost every single sci-fi film you have the malevolent AI being the bad guy, or girl, or neuter, whatever. If you're gonna have a malevolent AI, I think you should in some level explain why you're going to have a malevolent AI. Or if you don't, okay, fine, that's your way to go about it. The AI could have a lot of information on how to make the world better, yeah? For example, by removing the human race off the face of the earth. But why, as an AI, you have the information and then you're going to use it for this purpose? Why? The motive is kind of given you in the Animatrix film, where there is the whole 
two, yeah. two films, a complete segment about the whole, how the machines repaired. But if we are not counting in that... If you count Animatrix in, then maybe, yeah. If we leave that out of the discussion, are you proposing that the films that have the evil AI plotline should actually always strive to explain why the AI is evil? Like, what is the motives? Not necessarily. Are you demanding that from a movie that has has the evil AI narrative? Not necessarily, but... So why, why it's a sticking point here, now, all of a sudden? I didn't say that it's a sticking point, but I made the emphasis that it's getting a little tired, because I believe there is no reason for the AI to do this. I certainly would like to know. Yeah, I see the need, or why the story needs to have the bad AI, because the characters and the heroes, they need an opposing force. Yeah. They need their villain. Yeah, so it's basically just the movie making things comfortable and easy for us. Well, pretty much, yeah. Un- yeah. Unless you are counting in the Animatrix, which we, once again, no. we can leave it out of the discussion. No, We don't well, have to touch that, because I haven't visited the film for God knows in how many years the film itself is kind of a shit. Yeah. The whole backstory of the Machine War storyline is kind of a shit. It's one of the lesser segments of that anthology. And you can even, and with the film you kind of end up in the troubling waters of was this already pre-planned? Was this story already pre-planned? Or is it something that is being added to the mythos as the problems of the mythos are being presented? And because of that, because of all of that, I'm I'm willing to say that we don't have to touch the Animatrix. We don't have to talk about it, but there was one interesting concept, at least, that we can talk about. The humans started to segregate the machines into different lands than the humans are in. So basically what I got from that is that the robots are simply minding their own business and they're trying to get established relations with their human bodies. Yeah, which ends up with humans fucking it up because they do not accept them as living, breathing, existing things in front of the UN. Uh, something like that. It did draw parallels between the Israel-Palestine conflict that is actually going on in our world for even still because the buggers really can't actually end it. Right. But anyway, that was kind of the one of the points that the film was raising that I could understand you know this is the type of a conflict that is really hard to solve if there ever comes the day where the machines look like humans act like humans and appear to have consciousness that is at the same time and this is something that raises up as a problem every time when the evil ai is being given motivation for its actions is that that also kind of has been seen a million times and done to death Basically, every reason that the film industry provides you on why exactly the AI goes haywire and turns against the humans, they've all been used a million times. The plotline where where the humans are the ones who fuck it up and refuse to acknowledge the sentient AI and turn against the robots which they have previously used as slaves... Or the plotline where the AI comes into conclusion that since human is self-destructing, it's actually helping the human to self-destruct. Or the concept where the popular culture and the violence that is in the human popular culture somehow corrupts the AI. And like, like you, you've seen all of these scenarios play out God knows how many times. Yeah, 
So Neo doesn't believe the story of Morpheus. So yeah, and then the film basically claims that the real world is a world that where you can break rules, and it's more real than a world where you have rules. <sighs> real world, I guess, has rules, up until the point of the Matrix Revolutions, where Neo starts to stop the robots in the real world. Uh, yeah, you are alluding what happens to Neo in the later parts of the franchise. Yeah, in essence, he becomes a superman. Uh, thankfully, because w- once again, like I've said, I I do like the sequels, but I do admit that there are some problems in those, and the fact that Neo starts to have those superpowers also in the real world most definitely is something that I do have an axe to grind with the sequels. After the simulation, Morpheus explains more by the bedside. As long as the Matrix exists, the humans can't be free. And the Oracle has prophesied that the One will return, meaning that the Chosen One has already been there, but it will now reappear in the form of Neo. In the context of only this film, it it just seems that they're forcefully trying to add a Jesus reverence into the film. But yeah. It's something that once again comes to play in the later films. With yeah. the architect who actually explains that there has been God knows how many... Was it like six Chosen Ones? Before Neo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. There has been a numerous amount of Chosen Ones, and Neo is simply the last in the long line of Chosen Ones. Yeah, but actually this this film seems to suggest that in this incarnation of the Matrix, there has been already one Chosen One, and then the Chosen One appears again in the same incarnation well, of the Matrix. Are you now talking about the first film? Yep. Or the Matrix, the virtual reality. Which Matrix are we tackling on? The first film, which has Matrix, the virtual reality. Because Morpheus makes by the bedside the notion that in the beginning of this, this incarnation, there was the Chosen One. And now the Chosen One returns to that same incarnation once again. Uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, what it's driving at, it's giving you pre glimpse of the point that comes to play in the next film, essentially. This is prefacing that architect dialogue scene. But then that would indicate that we're talking about different matrices, which we are not. Yeah, and no, I mean, it's a, it simply is Matrix Rebooted once again. But Matrix Reloaded is not Matrix Rebooted, it's just the name Reloaded. It's not literally Reloaded, so Morpheus can't know shit. Well, because the whole shebang as it went, is that the whole myth of the Chosen One was actually created by the machines. And that was given to the humans. So that the humans can, firstly, to keep the pastors once again in check, but also to give you that one who will reboot the Matrix every time that Matrix starts to go haywire. Yeah, insanely intricate systems to control people's minds. Well... Granted, that, that it is, but also the scenario that Matrix plays out is quite complex. You, you have the whole doomed Earth and your virtual reality for which you actually need the human boot disk. Then it's good morning for Neo, and then Tank explains about him and his brother born directly to the real world. Neo starts loading fighting styles and such for 10 hours straight because he's a machine. <laughs> Then we get to the dojo. 
where Morpheus says the following quote, Do you think my being stronger or faster here has anything to do with my muscles in this place? Hmm? And don't think you are faster, no you are. And this is kind of a woo-woo aspect of the Matrix that pisses me off. Don't think that you're faster, no you are. And then you're just simply able to do the things that you can't do. Granted it's a game, if the game is somehow linked into the brain activity, and if it allows you to concentrate some tasks on the brain somehow differently, you activate different parts of your brain to do different kinds of tasks under different circumstances, then I guess yeah, that could work. But that is precisely what the Matrix is. There is that small moment, you may have missed it because it's one of those blink if you, if you miss it, but every time when they jack in the Matrix, a huge fucking spike is being actually plugged into their fucking brain. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about, though. You're making generous assumptions here, yeah, once again. Well, for fuck's sake, man, you actually see it in the goddamn film. You actually also see them unblocked from the Matrix. Yeah, this is a moment where the Matrix mixes up a lot of shit. You don't know how to take it. I don't know if the movie knows how we should take it. So here the movie is saying that you can hit better if you just think you can hit better. Okay, no, so... No, if, if, if you know that you can think better. Yeah, 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 so... Like Morpheus says, don't think, no. Okay, fine. Know that you're better, whatever the hell that means. So then you know, or you don't, but you think you know. So under this illusion, then you know that you can punch someone stronger, so it's kind of a but, but hallucination. But the pro- 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 problematic line there once again was think. Well, of course, like, think. Like, like, like get, get rid of that fucking think already. No, I won't. It's not I a won't. goddamn think tag. So how can you know if you don't know? So in other words, you think you know. So that's the problem here. Well, that I, I would say that is that is precisely a problem for you. Absolutely. Like, like if you if you th- take that take that road, that you can never actually know for certain anything, that you can only think that you know. That's actually quite the steep rabbit hole we are descending in that case. Well, it depends on how much Neo knows. If he doesn't know, then he doesn't know. So there. But but he actually gains knowledge throughout the film as information and possibilities are being proposed and shown to him. So then how the fuck he was not able to fight better in this dojo earlier? Because he Because he was already loaded with this no, so he should know what he should know, but he doesn't he, know. He, he, knows, he knows only when he's tricked into knowing something he doesn't know. He, he, once again, he only knows the moves. Precisely. But knowing the moves is something that actually putting real life faith and really actually really knowing. But that's exactly what the program should also give to him. Well, you can take it any way you like, but that's kind of the problem here. On one end of the coin, it's giving you this mumbo-jumbo that you you can just know yourself. That has yep. nothing to do with how things work. Well, <laughs> how to explain you, this to you? You know, you just have you, to uh, uh, you just have to believe that you can know something, so you can attack your opponent. And as 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 Morpheus actually explains it at the end of the film, that Neo now believes, and that believe turns yep. into better fighting skills. So it, it, it so, transforms into Neo actually trusting himself that he can pull off that stunt. So before, before those moments, he has been always doubting himself. So once again, can I make the jump? It sure as fuck is a long jump to make, and 
Well, in a real world, I wouldn't be able to make the jump. Exactly. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm 30-something, a little choppy guy. Exactly. Here in the Matrix, I have been doing coding job. Can I make the jump? And throughout being challenged and throughout possibilities being shown to him, he actually starts to understand that he has the ability to also do all this weird stuff and through that he actually gains the belief and this way he gains to himself the certainty that he really can do it. Exactly and you're pointing out the words believe and trust which have nothing to do with knowledge. It it, kind of does. (laughs) That's what the the clergy said. Knowledge doesn't actually mean that you can actually do do something. You you need the knowledge and you need the trust. You need belief. You, you have to believe in yourself. Yeah, but at this point the film is just making the point that you just have to know, which according to the film science means that you just need to believe. So it's making the case that it's not up to your skills. It's just up to your beliefs. No, no. Well, of course it's kind of what you choose to believe. Because once again, Matrix isn't a physical real world. It's a makeshift. Exactly. And therefore it should be as easy as pie. But for some reason uh, it's not. Well, why should it be easy as pie? Well, why wouldn't it? Because the virtual reality you can do what the hell you want. Because because you really haven't actually given yourself the full belief that you really can do it. And then you just believe, and then you just know, and then you're able to bend the code on the fly. Yeah, knowing and belief kind of go hand in hand. Knowing can give you more belief in your capabilities and believing in your capabilities can enhance your knowing. No, it's making a point that believe and know are meaningless words which have been completely inflated in this film. And that's pretty boring. Yeah, in a computer simulation kinda, if you have enough hacks or if you can code and change the simulation. The superhero narrative. Well, but once again, once again, in your average FPS, your first-person shooter, if you have gold mode on, if you have unlimited ammo and you have wall hack, what are you, if not Superman? Let's take it to the next level, then. There's another quote after the rooftop training. I thought it wasn't real. Your mind makes it real. Well, it's good for the movie Magic Tension, but it doesn't make any sense. The body can't live without the mind. Well, you can interpret that, that in millions of ways, but in a video game? Well, the mind can be damaged beyond the repair so, so that it actually ceases to exist. It's, it's once again, it's the combination of actually having strong enough belief. So, okay, so now the belief turns against you and you believe that you're going to actually kind of, die yeah, and you die. Yeah, but yeah, belief is kind of, kind of a tricky beast. You're playing a video game in a cute pixel world and then you're going to just die there, okay. Well, it's not exactly pixel world. Well, then what is it well, made well, of? Again, the simulation is, 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 is hyper real. This, this is not your goddamn doom, too. Well, according but to I, the I, latest knowledge, this, it consists of pixels. This is, this is notion. This is notion of gaming that I, I can most definitely believe that is being uphold. By a goddamn console, casual. Casual? But you're saying it's not made of polygons, pixels, textures? Y- you, don't, you don't know. You don't know what, it, what Matrix is actually being built out of. You're using today's technology yeah, and today's existing graphic systems to explain the Matrix which happens in 2100-something. Yeah, sure. 
kind of fundamentals of uh, gaming as we know it, but maybe we can skip that too. Trinity didn't bring males to Cypher when he was a freshman. That's because she believes that Neo is the one. Cypher is kind of getting jealous about it. But then there's another training, the lady in the red dress. The agents are explained that they are kind of the cops of the neighborhood, keeping order in their sense of order and making sure that the people are not escaping into the real world. And at the same time, the agents themselves are stuck in the Matrix. And especially Mr. Smith is incredibly adamant to get out of this place as soon as possible. And he needs the Zion access codes for that, which Morpheus holds. There's the quote, what are you trying to say, that I can dodge bullets? No, Neo, when you're ready, you don't have to. And we'll see that in the end. Sentinels are also explained they are search and destroy robots. Looking for Nebuchadnezzar. The only weapon of Nebuchadnezzar against those is the EMP pulse. Funnily enough, when uh, at the later parts of the film the Sentinel is already inside the ship, they use the EMP. Apparently, the insides of the ship will be completely unharmed anyway. The complex labyrinth that they're in is said to be a sewer. Very complex sewer indeed. Cypher says that the image translators work for the construct program. Henrik, what does it mean? I have no idea. And he adds that there's way too much code in the matrix to decode it on the screen. So why is there then enough information to display the matrix to the people who are inside the matrix? I guess it's that matrix is simply loading the map as you progress in it. Yeah, but the same ex exact stunt is not possible to do from the monitor inside Nebuchadnezzar. But okay, Cypher is wondering why I, why I didn't take the blue pill. Now Cypher is having a meeting with Agent Smith. This amount of obvious exposition was actually pissing me off as a teenager. Like when Cypher says that this meat that I'm eating here is just code blah 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 blah. We know that, thank you. But there's constantly these kind of philosophical ponderings kind of coming out of nowhere. If this were a real life scenario, I think Cypher and uh, Smith would just uh, close the deal and not babble about to how to meet this code. Because obviously they both know that. That is one of those mo moments that you simply need in movies. But again? Characters need to have like motivations and shit, man. Yeah, of course at this particular moment he has to do that, but whatever. He also makes a uh, double negation. I don't want to remember nothing. So after all, he wants to remember. <laughs> And he can give Agent Smith the guy who has the access code, this being Morpheus. Kinda hesitates for a second there when he hears Mr. Smith say Morpheus. So he still has some feelings for the crew, at least for Trinity, and wants to pull this off anyway. So, wh what did he want to remember? Beats me, but he did a double negation. I don't want to remember nothing, when he should have said, I don't want to remember anything, or I want to remember nothing. So kind of a grasping the needs picking there, ain't we? This is the flick lap. <laughs> this most definitely is the flick lap. Are we once again approaching the, that weird moment when we freeze freeze the movie and check up one frame? Yep. Elongating these episodes for a great loss of money and time. And, and, and listener patience. <laughs> it has been pointed out to us. Yeah, so the next scene. Tasty wheat. How did the machines know what tasty wheat tasted like? Is the question proposed by Mouse. That's a pretty good point. I guess they have made a pretty good effort. 
So they go into the matrix and uh, yeah. Well, um, once again, like most proposes, maybe good job. Exactamente. It's hard to say since in the situation that most proposes, nobody actually knows what anything tastes so like outside of Neprokanesar, which is is basically and Zion, which are the only two places that actually give you real food. And we get inside the Matrix to meet the Oracle, the famous sunglasses from the film were designed by Richard Walker from the Blind Design. I checked the Trinity glasses on eBay and they were $1,000. That's kind of a hell of a sum of money to actually pay out for a couple of sunglasses. Yep, and of course, during this very old landline phone scene, we play very modern music. Main beat manifesto, prime audio soup. Cypher drops a cell phone into the trash can for tracing purposes. And we get to the car. Neo makes the point that I have these memories of my old life, and whether these old life memories mean anything because they didn't exist. So, yeah, what actually happened to Neo when he entered the real world? Did he never exist? Or maybe he did? Or kinda he did, yeah? Nevertheless, I don't think it's so important because his real self has inherited these memories from his digital self. So they are real enough. It is kind of an interesting dilemma that the film presents there. Like, if Mm. your memories are fake but you still remember them, are they really memories? Yes, they are. And Neo is wondering what Trinity has been told by the Oracle, but Trinity hesitates. I kind of like the fact that the film is taking a nonsense woo-woo concept like the Oracle and then embedding it into this film and making it for another use case, basically. As we will find out later in the series, he, she is indeed only zeros and ones. It's simply an NPC that is working with probabilities of the environment. So not much of an oracle, really. Well, actual oracle, what oracle is supposed to be. A weather woman, dealing with probabilities. So not really an oracle as we traditionally yeah. know oracle. Yeah, I liked the explanation of the oracle that was given on in the later films. That, that all being said, I still kind of don't like the oracle as a character. Or the scene where Neo visits the Oracle. Really, I think it's one of the most legendary and most rememberable scenes out of the entire film. But what is she trying to do here? Why is she saying that either you or Morpheus will die? But that's okay, because you don't believe in that fate crap, honey. So take a cookie. You will feel fine. Have a nice day. Yeah, well, it it is feeding Neo's own words right back at him at that moment. The kid, the potential as they call him, says that do not try to bend the spoon, only try to realize the truth. There is no spoon. It is not the spoon that bends, it is only yourself. That doesn't make any sense because the spoon does bend. And the spoon doesn't bend Neo. He bends the spoon by him bending or cheating the code. Whichever the case, the spoon is being bent. Uh, Well... Is and is not, because there is no physical spoon. Yeah, well, there's no physical anything, so... Yeah, so he's simply changing the parameters in the code of the spoon. Yeah. So, does the spoon really bend? Well, yeah, you're bending the code. That is bending the object that you perceive as the spoon, and that's enough to call it a spoon bending. 
I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of hesitant with that because, once again, there is no spoon. <sighs> in, in reality, there is no spoon. It's spoon enough. It's what you call a spoon in the code. I, I, I don't know. I think this is just semantics, like nitpicking. <laughs> Well, uh, <coughs> to, to quote one podcast host, this is definitely clap. Bending the spoon, cheating the code. Uh, well, that, that is what is happening. You, you are quite right there. It is, once again, it is coding and cheat codes. Yeah, on the fly, with your mind, without a keyboard and mouse and shit. Yep, that's one of those dangers that often happen in, in cyberpunk fiction when your brain is jacked into the program. Yeah. Oracle says, sorry kiddo, you have the gift, that it, but it looks like you are waiting for something. What she wants to say in this scene is basically that Neo is not the chosen one. Well, but, not or really. Or is the chosen one, but is also waiting for something. Well, once again, this is one of the moments where I do admit I have a problem with the film. Because this is a cliche chosen one story moment. Where the wise sage, or in this case the wise oracle, makes the point that the chosen one ain't the chosen one because he hasn't yet accepted that he is the chosen one. In Tim Burton's Alice in the Wonderland, there is also the moment where the Alice meets the caterpillar and the caterpillar re- refuses to acknowledge Alice as Alice. And later on, he does acknowledge her and gives the explanation that in that previous meeting, Alice lacked emotional or spiritual edge or attribute that still meant that she wasn't the Alice that Caterpillar meant. She wasn't the chosen one. She was just a girl who was named Alice. And okay, was the same Alice who had visited Wonderland beforehand, but she was not the Alice that was prophesized would kill the Chapperwocky. And that's kind of what happens with Neo here. And what is the whole point of the walking the path is different than knowing the path line at the end of the film that Morpheus gives to Neo. Deja vu, black cat. It happens when they change something in the Matrix. Something indeed is being changed and the change is so that they cannot exit the building anymore because it's blocked. They also cut the hard line so Mouse is having a hard time getting out. It's a trap! But indeed, moorings have been placed all over the place and uh, he challenges the agents and dies. Cypher is uh, breathing in some stuff and probably is doing it on purpose or whatever the case, but he coughs. Now Morpheus does the superheroic stunt and goes on top of Agent Smith in order to protect the rest and especially the chosen one which has to be gotten out his all that matters. And for sure now Agent Smith knows that uh, this person is really important. Since the use of practicals and enormous practical effects was mentioned previously. Once again, to highlight the point here, the whole bathroom inner walls set itself was actually a practical set that was really created. And to give you an image of the scope of how big these were, the inside the walls set down which they were climbing was like 15 meters high and goddamn 180 centimeters deep and it was built from extra breakable material just so that you can actually get all that breaking stuff as they slide down holding down on the inner walls yeah and also one stunt actor got hurt pretty badly well yeah not only stunt actors this is the 
famous moment where Hugo viewing himself actually got a couple of his ribs broken when Lawrence noisily kicked him in the chest. And I understand he also got some leg problems prior shooting in the four-month training. Yeah, he did. He also did have to go through surgery (laughs) while in training. And that actually turned into a friendly chap between him and Keanu that they, they would constantly ask from each other, how's the neck, how's the leg? Yeah, and there was also problems with Keanu. He got his back injured, which caused the paralysis in his legs. The neck was operated and he was back to the sets. Of course, he was unable to train his legs at the time. For the first two months of the training, this uh, problem was yeah. there. But he also did something during the last two months. But when filming the yeah. leg kicking scene, then there were some problems. Yeah. They couldn't pull off the kicks on the first go, but on the next day they tried again and they got it on three takes. Yeah, there'd be even more rambling about the whole Keanu Reeves. He had had the surgery just before the fight training started, which was actually a huge problem for the whole film crew, because Yuan Wu Ping, when he was originally being contacted by Wachikovskis, stated to him that there would be a four-month training period. That's how long the main actors practiced all the kung fu and fighting style stuff. And when the offer was made, Wu Ping was kind of a hesitant. He didn't mm. really believe that he would need the four months because he was coming from Hong Kong where they more readily just use actors who know how to fight in kung fu movies. And he, he was certain that, you know, he can train the lot in two months. Four months is more than enough. Then he finally met the actors and noticed that they can't fucking do anything. Like, absolutely anything. They couldn't even throw a proper basic punch. And they were all out of shape. They didn't have the physical fitness to pull off the fighting moves. So he had to kind of start from the scratch, from muscle exercises and how you hit a person. And at that point, human being became worried that the four months isn't enough to get, get the crew in shape. And then you top that with the fact that Keanu had gone through the neck surgery and he was in recovery from the surgery, meaning that when he started to train, many of the moves actually caused him excruciating physical pain. There are some clips from the training sessions where Keanu all of a sudden just starts yelling and holding his neck because it's it's hurting so much. Okay. Yeah, those are kind of hard to watch. And because of that, the first two months, Keanu was denied of practicing the kicks in the movie. And Mm. he only practiced punching, which of course meant that when it came to the proper fight training, like punches and kicks, Keanu was constantly two months behind the rest of the crew, which is the reason why here in the film, Neo actually doesn't kick that much. Most of his... Fighting is punches, like palm strikes. That's the go-to fighting style of Neo. The dojo fight you mentioned, the one that they had to shoot for two days, because on top of the improper kick training, Neo also had had caps on the wire training, and pulling the kicks went on wires. So the triple kick that Neo pulls off in the dojo fight, they 
spent an entire day trying to get that one kick filmed and Keanu just kept failing because he just couldn't land it right. And they had to take a weekend off, return back to Monday. And on Monday they finally got the scene shot or that one kick shot. Okay, I, I only heard the version that uh, he was hopeful that everything would work out after four months, but then he started to notice how in what shape the actors were. And then there was, was of course, these injuries on top of that. But he started to work on individual actors' strengths. Trinity apparently had a feminine grace, and so on and so forth. So he just started to work on the characters' individual main skills and try to improve those as much as possible. Yeah, and the differences between the fighting stars are not super obvious in the film. But if you know to look for them, you can kind of see how they play out. Like you mentioned, Trinity was kind of a more feminine in her movement. There was more grace in her moves. And Morpheus, on the other hand, is the one who jumps around the most and bounces around in the fights. Mm. Smith, his moves are extremely strong and precise and kind of robotic. And like mentioned, Neo is someone who, who uses palm strikes, like, mm. like, like palm hit, back of the palm hit. And that is the go-to of his fighting. So th- there are those individual aspects on how each of the main characters fight. So now Morpheus and Agent fight. The wire foo is a little bit too obvious here. The great Morpheus is taken down by a bunch of cops, or are the agents posing as cops? Well, they, they are kind of a both. Mm. Like, they, they, they are cops that can turn into agents. Yeah, the way I took it is that these are once again just regular Joes doing their work, and Trinity is once again killing these people throughout the film, left and right. Uh, quite, quite unhesitantly, Yep. you may add, not a tear was shed. And those most likely, like you mentioned, were regular people who simply are checked into Matrix. Yeah, it's kind of the same when Matrix Reloaded starts with a bang, when there's a huge explosion that Trinity makes, killing people once again. But yeah, time was of the essence in that scene. Yeah, it's kind of a hearkening back to the notion that Morpheus made in the woman in the red dress scene that if you are not one of us, you are one of them. Yeah. And that's kind of the attitude you see here when the heroes, maybe in quotation marks, are mowing down basically ordinary people who simply are forcibly checked into the Matrix. Like, yeah. g- kind of the dudes who they are supposed to save from the machines, except I guess all of these cops are too old, since they also have the code that there is the age limit after which they no longer try to free you from Matrix because your mind can't take that shift. Hold, hold that hero thought, it's really important, we're going to come back to it in a moment. But let's check out first the scene where Cypher is looking for an exit with a bunch of other guys. Apoch dies, Switch dies, not like this. And they get back as the pilot re-emerges. Now Morpheus is being captured, so Henrik, is Agent Smith actually the hero of the film? <laughs> I would say not, because the main goal of the whole AI is malevolent. Is it, though? Like, there is the quote that Agent Smith says. I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I had to classify your species. 
And I realize that you are not actually mammals. Every mammal on the planet instinctively develops an equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and multiply. Multiply until every natural resource has been consumed. The only way you can survive is to spread into another area. There's another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. A virus. Human beings are a virus, a cancer of this planet. You are the plague, and we are the cure. And yeah, and in many ways, you, I, I have to hand it to Smith. He makes a strong argument, and he is not even that wrong with that sentiment. He is right on how humans behave, and if you take the lore of film itself, the humans in the end went and completely fucked up the planet when they used the nuclear weapons to block the sun and create that toxic cloud when they tried to stop the machines. Like, and if we are going to deduce that it was humans who completely destroyed the surface level, then it is kind of easy to see Mr. Smith's point and hard to argue against it. There, the way how I would start to build my counter-argument to that is that, yeah, that did happen, and yeah, what he said about humans does apply. But still, the machines, in the end, they are also the ones who actually raise humans in bondage and imprisonment, simply to physically abuse them as the humans are literally giving their life force to the machines to fuel the city and the existence of the machine race. So I, I would say that is pretty dickish move. Even though even though humans are assholes, I, I give that much to Smith, but so kind of are the machines. And add to the fact that I still can't find any motive for the machine's actions. Why would they give a toss if they are a virus or a mammal or a pest of any kind? And why would the machines even care to exist that there is no any logic provided? They just happen to or appear to process everything like humans. Like I would have a meaning, therefore I want to exist. Well, that, that is kind of the machine's angle in the matter. So but it seems. If, if you take the conscious AI approach, in that case, the machines would identify as conscious beings. And if you say that conscious beings have value to exist simply by the virtue of being conscious, in that case, the machines would have value to exist. And that drive to exist simply because they are, I think, kind of should be enough as a motive why the machines would want to exist. But what is the value of existing? I'm not sure if there is any value to it, logically thinking. What is the better choice, actually, logically thinking? To exist or not to exist? And based on what? Or for what purpose? Of course, not to expand crazily on the subject on this podcast. Well, not to expand too much, but since you proposed the question, I guess it merits that you also try to answer it. And my answer would be that once you have started to exist, you have a right to exist simply because you have started to exist. Like, yeah, you don't know better. Like, yeah, is it better to exist or not to exist? Well, you, you kind of could say that it is better not to exist. 
When it comes to suffering, God, God damn it. it's a certainty that you will avoid a lot of suffering if you do not exist. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you would also kind of save the planet and, well, everybody else from yourself by not existing. Hmm. I do kind of side with that notion. I mean, God damn it, I'm I'm almost Robin Williams levels of, of happy person myself. But once again... A, a conscious being that exists, I, I think, you know, at that point he has started, or it has started to exist, it has the right to continue existing, as long as it is possible. As long as it wants. Yeah, because if you apply the logic that it's better not to exist to those who already exist and are conscious beings, in that case, you kind of can just justify going on wild cat-shooting rampage. It's better that you don't exist. Pom pom pom. Yeah. And that that's that's obviously wrong, and you shouldn't do that. And if you had such fantasies, please seek help, and and stop following this podcast. <laughs> so Agent Smith is talking about the first version of the Matrix, which was constant happiness, which didn't work because well, entire crops were being lost. Perfect world wasn't fine, so you need to switch to the imperfect world. I guess it's in our DNA. That's what we want. Agents realize that Cypher is dead and the humans are ready to unblock for good Morpheus. The agents are sending the Sentinels because somehow they now know where Nebuchadnezzar is. Neo wants to plug in and save. Morpheus tells the Trinity that he is not the one according to Oracle. Trinity wants to join and uh, as she is the ranking officer. If he doesn't like it then he can go to hell. And so they do. Mr. Smith makes the point that he wants to get outside of the Matrix and go to Zion for a beach party. No, but he wants to go to destroy it even further and is not under the spell of the Master AI anymore somehow and is able to make his own decisions and wants to get outside of the Matrix. Yeah, and on top of that, at here Smith actually starts to show anger and frustration. Even hate, which are all feelings, so... This is once again something that links back to the later films where Smith goes completely out of control and becomes a threat to both humanity and the Matrix. And that plotline, you kind of see the first building blocks now in here where Smith first time showcases an individual consciousness and showcases these human elements that he kind of shouldn't have while being as simply a simple program. Actually, make Matrix Revolutions makes the point that that uh, such of a feelings, the feelings of love, human emotions, the way that we talk about them is just mere words. And the words themselves don't make these feelings any more special than they ought to be. So I suppose they are feelings and emotions that uh, also a robot can have. I, I don't know, that would mean that he kind of shouldn't actually exhibit those feelings, in my opinion. They shouldn't control his behavior, because if feeling starts to be something that you show, and something that affects how you act, in that case I would say that they are more than simply words. Like, they, they are concepts that affect you. Mm, yeah, but do they have any special meaning beyond that? It's just another function of you. Which we have discussed before in this podcast. You take a shit, you feel love... Is there any difference, really? Are you now making the argument that 
the love you feel and the, the love you showcase to others is shit. No, but Matrix Revolutions makes the following quote. Neo says, I just have never, Ramakandra says, heard of broken... It's a human emotion. No, it is a word. What matters is the connection that the word implies. End quote. You can split your hair endlessly about that quote. It can either mean it's something important or something that the only the humans can have. But here the AI is clearly making the point that it's not something special that only humans can have. And it's something that that can be just copied and replicated and therefore is not as special as we like to think it is. Yeah, and at the same time it also gives you the renewed Smith whose actions are affected by the emotions that he now starts to feel. Mm. We get to the lobby fight, and during the lobby scene, Moss messed up her leg and was completely devastated that she was unable to finish the shot. The run on the wall on one take. The other agents return to the interrogation room, and they start to notice that something is kind of off here, that they can't understand why they were called off the room. There must be some secrets going on between Smith and Morpheus. Smith wanted to get the Zion access codes to get the hell out of Matrix. And the helicopter in the scene is a lightweight replica full size with the real machine gun attached to it. And the copter plates are simulated by using strobe lighting. So the effects, effects come to full clear, we have the bullet time magic extravaganza as well. Filmed on top of a Symantec building in Kent Street, Sydney. Yeah. Now that you mentioned the helicopter, like you said, it really was a practical set. But so also was the office building itself. Like, was it three complete rooms, big set, which they built? Same goes also for the, the cityscape that you can see from the office room windows, which I've come to understand is the largest one piece translate in the world. And the crew kind of used computers when designing that translate to make sure that the cityscape didn't have any noticeable landmarks in it in order to make sure that uh, the city where the film happens remains unnamed throughout the movie. Yeah, that's right. And many of the visual effects of the film were processed with the free BSD operating system. Manix Effects was responsible for many visual effects, and there was D-Film. They did some digital compositing. The score of Don Davies uses the theme of seeing a lot of reflections on reflective material as an inspiration. Trinity says, dodge this. Trinity killing regular people once again. Oh well. And Neo asks, can you fly that thing? Not yet. Legendary scene. He, she just downloads all the information on how to fly the machinery and that's it. Moss performed all the wire stunts and introductory scene as well. We get to the subway station and once again Trinity hesitates to tell what the Oracle has told her. Gets out of the Matrix and now Mr. Smith appears and Neo and Smith get it on. Do you hear that, Mr. Anderson? That's the sound of inevitability. Mr. Smith getting crushed by the Metro is kind of hilarious. He's for a moment there pondering, like, Should I stay or should I go? It was too complicated to shoot this at the real metro station, so they required a train storage facility for all the wiring and shit. Reeves' stunt double sustained several injuries during the film. Broken ribs, knees and a dislocated shoulder. I think during this scene. 
Another stunt sustained injuries when a hydraulic puller crashed with a booth. Yeah, the machine that was nicknamed the Beast by the film crew, which they used to kind of give that impression of more hard-hitting hits, like these ah, supernaturally hard-hitting hits. Sentinels are now arriving in 5-6 minutes, and Mr. Smith now kills Neo in front of the room 303. Now the infamous moment when Trinity discloses what uh, Opera, <laughs> opera uh, Oracle has told her. Neo simply can't be dead because Trinity loves him. It's hopefully more in actual fact, like Morpheus didn't die, so Neo had to die, but he can't really die, so he becomes the Jesus. The kissing of Neo and him reviving, I never took it as kind of the Snow White moment of the film. I think Neo just wakes up and it has nothing to do with Trinity's whispering, but clearly the movie wants to suggest that it has everything to do with the whispering, which makes no sense. Um, yeah, I I never made my mind on what happened. Does Trinity's lines and the kiss affect Neo? Because, like you said, it makes zero sense. It's harkening back to the idea that, for example, a comatose people can hear and understand you talking to them and can somehow sense you being in the room with them and that would help them to recover. That's, I guess, the line of thought that could be at play here, even though that's not one-on-one situations, is Neo at the time is dead. But yeah, I, I don't know, because in many ways the film tries to imply that Trinity telling Neo that she loves him helps Neo somehow recover. And if I remember correctly, this is also something that the sequel, the next film in the line, would point out that Neo somehow felt or heard Trinity at that moment and that kind of made him to choose to come back. But all in all, the film once again is that typical emotional, you more or less get this in every movie, nice scene, which, well, well, depending on your take, maybe is, is a bit of bullshit. Yeah, I just took it as that. It has nothing to do with Trinity, and if we are going to take the sequels into the equation, then this would, in my opinion, suggest that this is the system's way of balancing itself out to reach the equilibrium once again. And Neo is needed in the Matrix to get rid of Agent Smith, I guess. Yeah. Most of all, use the goddamn boot disc. Yeah. But all this love energy nonsense. I hope to God this is not what the film is suggesting. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say for certain, because I also would hope that that's not the take the film is, is going with. But at the same time, when you look at how, how the scene is built and what happens in the scene, it kind of extremely strongly hints that, yeah, once again, the love magic is at play here. And shouldn't this be the moment where we go to the con- condemning section and you give the film some boot? Well, I, I am willing to give the film some boot for this one. Nice one. So no need to dodge the bullets, he is the one or actually isn't, as suggested by this film and the goddamn sequels. He's just good enough for the job of protecting a group of people for some time. In a way, the notion that uh, during the training that Neo doesn't need to dodge bullets when he's ready, it's kind of an indication of a a freedom of mind in the film's universe. 
juxtaposable with any revolution where the will for improvement overrides the fear of repercussions. But once again, once again, you can read it any way you want. Mr. Smith explodes but returns in Matrix Reloaded to keep the equilibrium or whatever. Spoilers! Nebuchadnezzar is able to do its EMP right on time. And then we have the final scene basically where Neo tells to the agent via phone that and broadcasts to every agent out there that I'm going to show to everybody inside the Matrix that everything is actually possible. So basically the endeavor of getting more poor souls out of the Matrix continues. And rage against the machine, wake up and end credits. Henrik. Yep. Cut to premiere, asses on the seats. Uh, the Matrix raked $460 billion in the global box office. Being kind of a Warner's record-breaking biggest hit that very much affected on how Warner as a company shaped after the release of the first film. Yeah, but even then, this was only the fourth or fifth best-ranking film in 99. There was a lot of competition. Uh, Sixth Sense, Toy Story 2, uh, Star Wars The Phantom Menace. So, yeah. Yeah, you, you can't really fight against a Star Wars film. Roger Ebert praised the visuals and premise, but was less praising on the third act, which focused too much on action. Mm, yeah, well, definitely the the film gets way more loose in the third act. If there's any moment whatsoever where the film would lose momentum, that would be the third act. I don't know. Then again, the third act actually has the best fights in the whole film. All the most top-notch, most major action sequences are in the third act. Yeah, in this film the fighting still have meaning, but uh, cut to, for example, Matrix Reloaded, we have the Keymakers and Oracle's protector boy, and he challenges Neo for a fight just for the heck of it. Well, actually to prove to himself that this is actually the Neo, so the best way to come to know somebody is via fighting, but uh, yeah, clearly the fighting scenes have less value in the sequels. Yeah, yeah. Once again, I, I'm one of those who actually support and like the sequels. I'm not joining the anti-sequel hate bandwagon here, but the sequels do have problems, a fair share of them. And yeah. also the fights, some of the non-reasonable fights and fights that take too long is one of the problems that the sequels carry. Yeah, Matrix Reloaded is still fine. Matrix Revolution starts to lose kind of its bearings. It gets too loose in the third act and it gets kind of boring, to be honest. It's hard to pinpoint how, but we should do an episode on that. Anyway, the original Matrix won the Oscar for all the categories that it was nominated for. Best film editing, best sound, best sound effects editing and best visual effects. Also, the series has some video games, Enter the Matrix, The Matrix Online. Which also, I've come to understand, was not that good. And there was Matrix Reloaded. Which is the best one? Matrix Revolutions and Matrix The Path of Neo. Yeah, Path of Neo kinda is the best one of the games. There is no that one groundbreaking hit that would be kind of a game to end all games. You don't get that Metal Gear Solid, Red Dead Redemption, Halo, Doom level of game in the Matrix. If you would 
have to play one of them, I would say that Path of Neo is is the most enjoyable. I managed to skip all of those games, so no opinion. I read some Pelaajalehti, Pelaajan magazine, <laughs> and that fucker actually tricked me into giving Matrix Revisited. What the fuck was the first game to come out? The, the Atari one. The absolute shit show. Uh. A chance. There's also the Matrix Comics Volume 1 and 2 if you want to check it out. After the Matrix, Matrix of course, the Wachowskis have come out as trans women. And people have suggested that this fact, the trans fact, has something to do and has influenced the Matrix film as well. It all goes back into this uh, Morpheus meeting scene where Morpheus says that it's like a splinter in your mind. Or you feel that something is wrong, you don't know what, but you know that it's there. Could be that these references are there for that purpose, or who knows. If memory serves and if this information is correct, there is also, of course, the case that in the original plans, I heard that uh, they wanted to have a male character who would turn into trans in the Matrix, or something like that. Something of the sort. Already Matrix has been selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. And actually, one of the Wachowskis is going to do Matrix 4, expected to come out in 2021, so look out for that one. Favorite performance! Are we jumping to the quickies, and or do you still want to actually fight over the philosophical points? <laughs> no, I think I'm done. Well, I, I, I don't know, I, I have a actually whole load of these one packed here, but favorite... But never mind, favorite performance. That would go to Hugo Viewing for Agent Smith. It's the smell. Yeah, I would go with Hugo as well. Yeah. Hands down. Keanu may be the iconic face of the franchise, but Hugo is the is the one who makes the most nuanced and the strongest performance. Also a very, very high honorable mention for for for, for Carrie Ann Moss, because I think she is very believable in this role and basically every role that she does. And Brings like a believability into the hovercraft. Favorite scene? It would be the reception hall shootout. Mm. Yeah, I'll probably go. Yeah, with that. yeah. it's yeah. it's, it's yeah. one of the most energetic action scenes you get in movies. And a little bit of humor there as well. Also, please also. Sir, remove all your metallic items. Favorite quote? Well, that would guess once again also go to Hugo. Because I really, like, there is a lot of great quotes throughout the film, and a lot of stuff that I, I liked. Many of them either coming from Morpheus or, or Smith, so it's hard to pick just one. Mm. But si- since I have to choose, and mo- most notably since you already took the human beings are, uh, are disease, I, I would kind of go with, but I believe that, as a species, human beings define their reality through misery and suffering. My favorite quote would be the whole you are the plague quote that I uttered here already. But it continues with this piece, so I think we can include this because it's great as well. I hate this place, this zoo, this prison, this reality, whatever you want to call it. I can't stand it any longer. It's the smell. If there is such a thing, I feel saturated by it. I can taste your stink. And every time I do, I fear that I've somehow been infected by it. End quote. So even for uh, AI, something can be repulsive. Favorite kill? 
it would be Smith getting it at the subway. Mm, getting it at a subway, it's um, it's not really a kill, is it? Well, it, it kind of is. It kind of is. If if nothing else, the whoever happened to be the hapless individual whose body Smith had had taken over most certainly died at that moment. Yeah, I would go with Smith as well, but the end explosion of Smith, I would say. Would you take the red or the blue pill, Enric? I have been wondering that myself, and I don't know. I I like. I I guess I would take the red pill, and then just hate myself for it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I I I do have I I do have the shared problem with Neo and other characters that I do strive for for the truth and and constantly trying to understand and find out more. But I, I can also speak from experience when I say that that does not always lead into a very nice place of being. All those searching for the truth and trying to understand, it, it comes with a price in the end. There are days when you really wonder that, in the end, has it really been worth it? I also believe that ignorance is bliss to a point, as stated million times in history. Once you get over a certain threshold of knowledge, I think the knowledge is kind of more valuable to your well-being than lack of knowledge. I don't know any of those attributes. Do do they apply? Because I I, I do have some pretty heinous experiences from the about this, but I, I I don't know. I I somehow just can't change that aspect in me. Have you exited the matrix, Mister Hendrickson? Maybe not. In the end. I may still be very much inside. I guess we can't avoid this question either. Do you believe, Henrik, that we are inside the Matrix? Yeah, how 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 to answer that? I I guess I don't believe in it, but I don't have any proof against it. Because I the more often the argument the question is do you believe that you really actually exist? Are you a computer simulation? Instead of simply being a person who is checked into a computer simulation, and and the go-to answer you often is is the René Descartes cognito ergo sum. I think therefore I am notion, and I I kind of have an umbrage with that because I don't think that that is the ultimate proof that we really are existing as individuals. For example, Immanuel Kant has pointed out that there is a limit. Or there is limitations to our thinking and the way we experience reality. Like, for for example, you and I, we, we can we can see reality, but for example, a blind man couldn't see reality. He has a limitation, and in the same way, we also have a limitation on how we experience reality. We don't actually see the entire reality. The way how our eyes and brains work, there is a huge amount of stuff. That we don't, for example, see, and we don't hear, and we don't taste, and we don't feel, so we don't get that ultimate experience. And since our experience of reality is is limited, that means that also our thinking is limited. Like we have blockages in our thinking, we can't have that god-like thought process. So I, I I don't think that the thinking that we we present is the ultimate proof that we do exist, and because of this, I think therefore I am is not the ultimate answer or the ultimate proof for us existing. And then there is also the whole notion, for example, lucid dreaming, in which 
the persons going through a lucid dream, they manifest a capability to knowingly think an image within a dream, which kind of showcases that if we would be someone else's part of someone else's dream, or we would be part of not real world, that kind of also could still hold true, because we can do it, so why wouldn't somebody else? For me, the question, am I inside a matrix, kind of comes down to, to, to having faith and believing that I am not. But I do think about it every now and then. And I, I don't know, may, maybe Matrix in a way also is a bit dangerous film, because Matrix showcases at times quite believable and quite strong arguments that, you know, our reality could be fake that this could be simulation, and you should try to free yourself from the simulation, and that could kind of leave you in the rooftop, like it happens in the Animatrix. Hmm, interesting. I guess it's kind of a dangerous film, I suppose. Well, a little after this film was released, it inspired some mass shootings, but there's always those wackos out there. I mean, you can justify and be motivated by a fucking Cinderella to kill people with glass shoes, you know? Yeah, that do that you can. I, I also don't side with the argument that, that film or video games or, or heavy metal music are evil and they will somehow groom you to become a, a mass shooter. That's also something that's not quite supported by the facts. Well... Like stated prior, I think it's possible that we are inside a simulation, but uh, if we are inside a simulation, it could also be that we are only inside the simulation and we do not uh, exist in any other medium beyond. So, yeah, I guess I just generally love theories that make the human race look lesser, because humans surely love to think they're special. And I just generally love every time when that is shown to be wrong. Yeah, if you would go with the notion that identity and societies are imaginary constructs, and that they are something that we build for ourselves and others, in, in that case, I, I don't know, maybe you could say that in a way you are in a matrix, because mm. you, you live in a society that kind of is not real. It is make-believe, in a way, like, in a sense that it's not being given to you by God or anything else. It's it's just something that has evolved through history by people coming together and deciding that our society is this and deciding that my identity is this. This is the, pers- the kind of person I am. And then you would also have your con- control environment in in form of Facebook and and the social media platforms. Then again, stuff like that. if you're willing to accept the theory of the Matrix on some level, whatever your version of it might be, then you have to ask follow-up questions like, why and what's... is there something else? And on and on. Yeah, yeah. If you would kind of want to, to get, get an easier answer, like like what would be there and outside of it, what, what would be there beyond society... If, if you take it that society is an imaginary construct, well, I don't know, maybe you could go with, like, Nietzsche, who felt that people are born into constraints, like, good, bad, true, false, do this, do that, diatomy, and in this sense, the Ubermensch would be someone who 
sees through it and past it and is, is capable of defining the right, false, good, bad for himself. Mm. And, mm. and m- maybe that could be something that would be like there for you outside of of a fictional society and outside of a fictional identity, this new identity where you're no longer good and bad, would it not be defined by the society? Like given to you by society, this is right and this is wrong. Good people go to church and bad people are gay people. And you would become a person that defines all of this to you yourself. I would just say the mountains, Henrik, where no hierarchical systems exist if you are there all alone. All the more reason to go for the trip. Well, I'm fearing that we would just end up creating a hierarchy there ourselves. (laughs) We we would start to block off parts of the mountain and declaring that this is our part of the mountain and if you come to this part of the mountain you have to follow these rules. Oh dear. First image that comes to mind, Henrik, for me it's a dojo. Yeah, for me it would be that shot when the helicopter hits the office building wall and explodes as Trinity is is sliding towards the camera. Which frame best exemplifies this film? My my original mentioning in my notes is is Neo doing the dodging the bullets at the rooftop, but during the recording I've become kind of a hesitant and I'm kind of more going with that one shot of beginning of the film when the cops arrive to arrest Trinity and there is that frozen moment in time when Trinity is, has jumped into the air and is hanging there and is just before she kicks the cop to the back wall of the room. Yeah, that bullet time magic trick in the beginning is legendary, but I decided to go with the ending scene when uh, Neo stops the bullets and becomes the de facto Jesus. What took you out of the Matrix, Henrik? For me, there was no such thing. I I didn't fall out of this film. Never has, and maybe never will. Yeah, not this film. Keeps you connected to the Matrix throughout the film. There, there may be bullshit moments, and there, there are moments you can give boot to this film, but they weren't strong enough for me that I would have fallen out of the film. What pulled you in? To me, it was that goddamn... 101 opening. With Trinity, yeah? Yeah, precisely. Ever since since that arrest scene starts, when Trinity starts to resist the arrest, from that moment on, I was hooked with the film. It happened to me the first time I saw it, and it still has that effect on me. Hmm. Well, what pulled me in, it's kind of always been that uh, philosophical parts, in a way, for better or worse. And I kind of like the training sequences, the loading program, that modern age, blank background and all that. Scissors of Sacrilege, what would you change in the film? I really wouldn't actually change anything. Like, not not, not even those moments that I gave boot to the film, because I don't know how exactly change them. Like, cut, cutting out for, I, I guess, could work, maybe removing the oracle or some such, but then again... Like mentioning, they weren't that big, big of a deal that they would have taken me out of the film, so I'm kind of a hesitant now to touch the film with scissors. Hmm. I really like the Oracle in the film. If I would like to change something, then probably I would try to do something with the action scenes in the third act to make it shorter. You really know you're watching The Matrix. When? 
well, do you actually really know that you are watching Mate? Like, like no, knowing that would need that you can defy yourself and the time and the space and the objects in space. Like, you would have to know that for certain that you are in a room now and you have a film that is Matrix and you are watching the Matrix. And if you would be hesitant on any of those points, then I, I, I don't know. I, I guess you wouldn't really know that you are watching the Matrix. Good one. However, if you were to be a pretentious prick here at the lab, then I would say, and I would say that borrowing a few words from a simulacran simulation, you really know you're watching The Matrix when you see a puerile interpretation of a quotidian dreariness. Someone has been reading those big books. (laughs) (laughs) Three adjectives to describe The Matrix. From my end, they would be deep, because I really did enjoy all the philosophical questions in the film. It would be innovative because of the changes that it made to action movies and, and film in general. And, well, to, to point to one thing, the most obvious thing, the invention of the bullet time, which was a huge effort and something that, well, I, I can't be amazed enough that they were able to actually invent it. And I can't be pissed enough to see it completely go to waste in a complete nonsense moments like the fucking BBC Sherlock series. <laughs> and the last one would be energetic because of all of the action and the fast movement and the differences between the camera speeds that they are using, even all the prodigy that plays in the background. A fussy, inexorable <laughs> due to the fact that they all have a faith, even though they're not supposed to have a faith, so... And I would say as the third one, it's exciting, even though I still maintain that the film is kind of a mixed soup, kind of a all over the place, inconcise in its ideas, but kind of not really that much when compared to the sequels. Did you look at your watch? I have actually never looked at my watch when visiting the Matrix. Yeah, no, no, not needed. There's no time if you want to keep up with the with the plot, and if you want to delve deeper into think, thinking about and marinate all these philosophical ideas, would you recommend The Matrix? I'm kind of a divided, because I like the film extremely a lot, so of course I would be recommending it, but then again there is also the notion that quite often when you introduce people to the things you like, the people come and completely make a shit all over them, so there is also that protective element here, which would say uh, most definitely don't watch The Matrix, so I can keep it for myself. But I I, I don't know, at this point I would say that everybody has seen The Fucking Matrix, and if you haven't, in that case, most definitely, please, go do yourself a favor and check out The Matrix. Yeah, yeah, it definitely opens some interesting thematics, and I would definitely recommend The Matrix. There is, of course, problems that you can find if you really, really want to, like I do. (laughs) This is the Flick Lab. There have been plenty of critics that have actually given an axe for the Matrix, but uh, I'm not that harsh. Definitely (laughs) the uh, pros outweigh the cons. So even if you don't care about the philosophical points, it has great cinematography and generally well-executed story. Go check it out, the Matrix, a never-heard film. Um... Yeah, I actually wanted to give a little bit of a, like a more one two days more for myself to 
marinate in the Matrix uh, background research, but as we are a weekly podcast, it doesn't really work so well. Unfortunately, it is something that comes to bite us in the ass every now and then when we are tackling these films. Yeah, so that means that I'm going to leave my personal philosophical mumbo-jumbo to this point. Anything else, or can I already throw the Flick Lab test tubes to the wall? I, I guess at this point we actually do need some Celine. That's a more reasonable option. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And indeed, if you like the content that we're pushing out weekly, uh, I hope you can go and give us a rating on iTunes, because uh, we really need those. They really benefit us in our visibility. Seriously, guys. Seriously. Henrik, looks like next week we are going to travel to Mali to see a film called Jelen, to cross out one of those pesky international films once again from the list. So I hope you will join us for some pretty special filmmaking for the next one. And after that you can join us for Maybe Never Say Never Again Never Never Say Never I'm actually waiting for one of those films. I'm not telling which one, but the other one I'm extremely excited about and the other one I would actually like to avoid like the fucking plague. <laughs> I hope it's never say never again. I'm not starting to drop any names here. Just so that I actually don't hurt the ego of Sean Connery. <laughs> would be nice to check out the sequels to The Matrix at some point, but that would not be this point. It's not going to be this point. No way. Until next week. Until then. Oh.